you might notice, we're finishing up with 2 Samuel. We're in 2 Samuel 22 today, and we'll have two more chapters in 2 Samuel. Uh, And then, just so you'll know where we're headed, uh, Matt and I are planning on starting a a new series just after Labor Day. So so typically in our church, after Labor Day, we take the Sunday after Labor Day to sort of set some some direction for our church. And then we're going to do a quick series that we're calling the basics, okay? So we've got six basics. If we were normal, we would have like a title that fit with B-A-S-I-C-S, but it's Matt and I. So uh, we, don't have, we don't have any alliteration going on, uh, but we're, we're going to just kind of go back to the basics as a church and talk about some things that we think are essential to the Christian life, okay? So we would ask you, I think that, that starts on September 10th. You're, you're welcome to come to church before then, of course. Um, but we would ask you to maybe make that a priority over those weeks in the fall as school is getting into full swing, because we would really like for you all to hear those, uh, those, those six basics as we come out of the fall, and then we're still, we're talking about where we're going to head after that. So that's, that's kind of where we're headed over the next few weeks. Um, I'll also t- say this about this passage. I had written an introduction to this sermon that I'm not kidding. It was one of the best introductions that you've ever heard. And I mean, like Hall of Fame introductions. But this is a really long passage, so I had to delete it. Okay, so it's gone. Uh, It's gone from history. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you won't get to hear it. Nobody will ever get to hear it, but it was really good. Um, Instead, we're going to jump right in. All right, so we're going right in. 2 Samuel chapter 22. Uh, I don't often concern myself with uh, introductions, as you know. Sometimes you just have to dive right into a passage. So here's my question to start with this morning. How do you speak about God? All right, so that's where we're going to start. If a pagan, like a literal pagan, were to walk up to you and say, tell me about your God, what would you say? And so chapter 22 is David's testimony about God, about his deliverance in David's life. And David is going to go on and on about God in a way that you don't often hear people talk these days, because most people these days are, are more interested in talking about themselves, right? But David, David's got a lot to say about God. One verse in particular has stood out to me this week, and that is uh, verse 19 in the passage. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. And so, in the day of your calamity, who or what is your support? And I, I got to tell you, after spending a week with 2 Samuel chapter 22, I, I want to be able to speak about God the way that David speaks about God. David knows God, he's been delivered by God, and he really wants to tell us about that experience. I've made it no secret with y'all that these last chapters, this second half of 2 Samuel, it's been a challenge to understand, to study, and it's been a challenge to preach. Chapter 22 this week has been a joy. It has been a joy. We we sang the song, uh, you know, you may think, wow, that's a real throwback to the 80s. It's actually like a throwback to the 1000s BC, all right, because it's kind of coming out of this passage, Um, and this this is David's version of, of, of here is my God, okay? So I'm going to read a fair amount of scripture this morning. Be ready. 
Um, keep, keep that Bible open. Let me just, just say a word of context before we jump into the passage. We are at the conclusion of 2 Samuel, all right? And so remember, 2 Samuel is actually one book with 1 Samuel. So we're at the conclusion of 1 and 2 Samuel. And it's interesting, right at the beginning of 1 Samuel, you have this sort of song of deliverance from Hannah. Remember that? It was a long time ago. And now here at the very end of the book, we have this song of deliverance from David. So that's the way the author has set it up. Chapter 22 begins... It says, And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. As I pointed out last week, these last four chapters, they're not arranged chronologically, okay? They're arranged thematically. So the author is is presenting this conclusion. These are specific accounts that he has chosen to conclude his book. Next week, we'll have a a different song of David that actually does come at the end of his life. So we're we're jumping around in the life of David a little bit. One might expect the author to conclude by saying, let me give you a song of how David was a great and mighty king. But he doesn't. He concludes with David saying, let me tell you about my God and how my God is a great and mighty God. By the way, 2 Samuel 22 is almost identical to Psalm 18. So God's given it to us twice, right? So it must be important. All right, so we're going to give our attention to this long chapter this morning. Tyler and I actually talked. I had originally intended to read this whole chapter uh, right at the beginning, but it's really long, and I don't want you to lose the, the forest for the trees. So we're going to take each portion as we come to it. We could spend weeks mining the treasures here, but we'll take a broad brush. Simple outline for the morning. David's statement of praise in verses 1 through 4. David's reason for praise in verses 5 through 49. And then David's legacy of praise in verses 50 and 51. All right, so let's turn our attention to the text. I already read verse 1, uh, and we'll, we'll pick up with verse 2. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. These verses come from David's mouth like an explosion of praise. It's it's a machine gun uh, list of words. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock, my shield, the horn of my salvation. You might say that David runs out of words to proclaim his experience with Yahweh. So David starts out our psalm today by saying, let me tell you about my God. Let me tell you about my God. He's very excited. Clearly, this is a topic that that David enjoys talking about. And so the rest of the chapter, then, is David explaining these four verses. David is boasting in God. So uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, Let him who boasts 
boasts in the Lord. And he's quoting from Jeremiah who says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. I mean, if you really like to boast... You don't boast about your intellect. Don't boast about how strong you are. Don't boast about how fit you are. Boast in the Lord. Boast in God. I, there's that, that children's song. Uh, I don't know if people still sing it. I don't know if kids still sing it, but it goes like this. It's like, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. That's simple, right? But it's kind of like what David is saying. It, it makes the point. My my God is so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God can't do. And so in David's experience, the Lord has provided this unfailing protection against life's threats. The Lord is a rock. He is unmovable. You build your house upon the rock because the rock isn't going anywhere. The rains came down and the floods came up and the house on the rock stood firm, right? But the house on the sand gets washed away. The Lord is a rock. The Lord is a fortress. Under his watch care, you are not, the enemy can't touch you. He can't break in. The Lord is a shield. The arrows of the enemy, enemy the fiery arrows are going to come at us, but the Lord is a shield to protect us. And remember, it's very important, this is not a metaphorical enemy, right? Last week, the, you know, we talked about David's men weren't fighting metaphorical giants. They were fighting literal giants. David is fighting a literal enemy. Saul wants to kill him in this context. So just so we're clear, David doesn't say the Lord is a warm, soft blanket. He keeps me comfortable. He doesn't say the Lord is my grandfather. He gives me what I want. He doesn't say the Lord is my doctor. He keeps me healthy and pain-free. He doesn't say the Lord is an ATM. He dispenses money. On Tuesday night, we had that storm. The, the rains came down and the floods came up. And the limbs came down. And my electricity went out. I know some of you experienced some of the same. My house got dark. It was really inconvenient. I mean, when the, when the lights go out in the middle of summer in Savannah... I've got questions about how I'm going to be able to sleep that night. My house got really warm. Erica, when we got married, introduced me to noisemakers. I didn't know about ambient noise. Now I know about it and can't sleep without it, right? So now it's a part of my life. Now a silent house, like I can't sleep. And that was uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable as we got ready to go to bed. My yard's a mess. That meant that one of my sons had to clean that up. But the Lord kept us safe. Okay, so here's the thing. Had the tree fallen on our house and crushed us all, we could still say that he was with us. Because when we experience frustrations and inconveniences, it does not mean that God is anything less than David is describing in verses 2 through 4. Because God has not promised to keep me comfortable. He has not promised to keep the electricity on. He has not promised to keep my yard from becoming a mess. But when I trust in him, I am safe because my soul is safe in him. All right, so now we turn 
to David's reason for praise. Okay, so that's, that's the statement of praise. Here's his reason. So having boasted in the Lord, the rest of the chapter, almost the rest of the chapter, is about this deliverance. And, and this, this is what I think is so interesting here. David is not interested in just bare facts, okay? He could say, there was that time when Saul did this, there was that time when Saul did this, there was that time that, when Saul, and that would be fine, but he wants to, 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 to inspire us. David is moved to praise, and, and I would say, as we're going to see, both poetically and theologically. All right, so look at verses 5 through 7. For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord, to my God I called, from his temple he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. All right, so we know David is not describing a time when he was drowning, right? He's speaking figuratively. There was a time when he felt so helpless up against Saul that it was as if he were in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea and the storms were, were swirling and he was sinking beneath the waves and he was about to go under. One, one writer said, David wasn't just in the shadow of death, he felt death's clammy clutches. And at one point, David had said to Jonathan, his good friend back in 1 Samuel, there is but a step between me and death. And so what did he do? He called upon the Lord. And it was a sincere call. Save me. In the day of his calamity, he cried out to the Lord. And I have to stop here and ask. This is, this is my question for all of us. It is the question that I've been wrestling with this week as I prepared to speak this passage. In the day of our calamity... Who would you cry out to? Because most of us are not experiencing literal enemies who are trying to kill us. But we know what it's like to feel the waters rising and to feel the waves swirling. When the amount to pay, be paid out exceeds the amount of money coming in, who do you cry out to? When the kids and the boss and the coach and the family start to require more time than you have, who do you cry out to? when the doctor has a bad diagnosis, when the trusted friend fails you, when our democratically elected government decides to flip off the switch of life because there's a virus, what do you do? And sadly, many professing Christians do not cry out to the Lord. And I'm finding, hear me, I am finding of late, many don't want to be told to cry out to the Lord. Some might offer some kind of prayer, but many refuse the help. David, the psalmist, I don't think it's David, says in Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. The Lord is our refuge. That statement is either true or it's not. That either represents your experience of the Lord, or it does not. And I would suggest to you that if it has not been your experience that the Lord is a very present help in trouble, I would humbly and lovingly suggest that you may never have truly asked for His help. There's a verse in Psalm 145. Every time I read through the Psalms, I'm always caught by this verse, verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him. Great, 
Yes, thank you to those who call upon him in truth. It's very comforting, but there's a condition. We must call on him in truth. And this means that we should make ourselves ready. We should prepare ourselves to cry out to God. You have to know God if you're going to be able to cry out to him in that moment of your calamity. So I sat with some precious brothers and sisters at uh, Hope Heals Camp in July, and uh, they were all parents of children with profound disabilities. So they, 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 some had suffered heartbreaking loss, and some were parents of people with profound disabilities, and they had suffered heartbreaking loss. And to a person, they testified that the Lord had been with them every step of the way. Now, they had difficult questions, and they were sad, and they were often uncomfortable, their descriptions of long, sleepless nights. They expressed, too, that they felt alone in terms of human help, but all of them affirmed that the Lord had been with them. One of the things that we discussed was, what does it mean when you cry out and it doesn't feel like the Lord is there? And to a person, they said, you trust him because you know that he says he is with you. In the moment when you cry out to God and it doesn't feel like he's there, you trust him because he has said he is there. That, brothers and sisters, is a faith that is born out of the fire of suffering. And I would say it is hard to trust God and his promises when you don't know the promises. And that is why, as your pastor, I so desperately want you to know this book. Every single promise is precious. Every book is profitable. When you hear the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth, shouldn't the response be, I need to clear the decks because I want to call on that God in truth? So what happened? So David could have said, and the Lord came to my aid. So he could have used seven words, right? but instead he uses about 140. This chapter could be a lot shorter, and we could all be at lunch a little sooner. But David paints this picture of Yahweh's response, because David doesn't really just want to tell you the fact about Yahweh. He wants you to see Yahweh in all of his saving fury. We're going to read verses 8 through 20. Just, just read with me the, the poetry of this, okay? The earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, and devouring fire came from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him, his canopy, Thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. 
Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Basically, David says, when I called to the Lord, the whole world came undone. God was angry. He was angry that my enemies had done this to me, and he came flying on a cherub to help me. Yahweh comes to his aid. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. This is this, that, that metaphor. He's going back to the fact that he was, he was lost within the sea. By the way, drew me out of the water, that, that phrasing is used one other time in the whole Old Testament, and it's when Pharaoh's daughter reaches down and takes Moses out of the river. How would you describe a moment when the Lord came to your aid? I cried to the Lord, and he was helpful. In that moment when I needed him, eh, I guess guess he was there. Surely we can do better than that. When the God of the universe comes screaming out of his glorious throne room to come to the aid of a tiny, little, sinful human being. It, it, It might even be worthy of some poetry, guys. I know that seems crazy. I'm not very poetic. But it might even be appropriate to say I was at a loss for words. It was so amazing to me that I I can't even formulate the words. But surely we shouldn't be people who are like, "Eh, I don't have much to say about that. Why did Yahweh come to his aid? Okay, so there's a section in the middle of this passage that is very troubling to some. And you'll see why in just a minute when I read it. So these words make some Christians feel very uncomfortable because here's here's the thing, and I'll just tell you what the problem is and then you'll see it. Is David proclaiming here works righteousness? What does David mean when he says that the Lord rewarded him for his righteousness? All right, let's read beginning in verse 21. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. With the merciful you show yourself merciful, with the blameless you show yourself blameless, with the purified you show yourself, you deal purely, and with the crooked you make yourself seem tortuous. You save a humble people, but your eye is on the haughty to bring them down. You are my lamp, O Lord. O my God, lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. And at at this point, most preachers would stop and spend a week over in the New Testament and would say, well, let me clarify what David was saying 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. And I would contend that David is very clear 
on grace and justification. David, even writing before the incident with David with Bathsheba, was, knows that he is utterly dependent on God's merciful provision. So I'm not going to stop and apologize for David. He knows what he's talking about. And let me just be clear, eternal life is a gift that comes through the shed blood of Jesus. David trusted. He didn't know about Jesus Christ in particular, but he trusted that God was going to provide an atonement for his sins. So when David says, the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, he does not mean that he will be in heaven because of his righteousness, all right? David is not saying, the Lord is going to take me to heaven because I have been righteous, all right? So just hold that. This is a passage about trusting in the Lord for deliverance from the enemies of this world. And David is explaining what kind of person we should be if we expect the Lord's help. So what does it mean to trust in the Lord? It means to keep the ways of the Lord, verse 22, to keep his rules and statutes, verse 23, to live blameless before him, verse 24. The faithful person does not obey God's word to be saved. The faithful person keeps God's word because it keeps him safe. Do you see that? Do you see that distinction? And as faithful people, we should be clear that, that our safety comes from remaining in Christ. Those who walk with God cry out to him in the day of the calamity and find him there. And here's my observation. Those who don't walk with God either don't cry out to him in the day of calamity or don't want to. David says, I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. Okay, so I get it. This sounds really proud to us, okay? To call oneself blameless, Paul, David is not saying that he is sinless, all right? Think of it this way. I can say that I am blameless before Erica, okay? I can say that. It doesn't mean that I have never sinned against her. It doesn't mean that, that I've never done things that I shouldn't. It means that as far as I know, I am in a right relationship with her. I don't have lingering guilt. Our relationship is at peace. And because I am a sinner, in order to live at peace, I try as quickly as I can, keyword try, as quickly as I can, to confess my guilt, to, to, to confess my sin to her and to return to that peaceful relationship as possible. And then, and then when she says to me, I forgive you, I trust in her forgiveness. And so I, I believe that we live at peace. Paul says at several places in the book of Acts, I don't know if you've ever known this, he says, I have lived with a clear conscience. It's kind of the same thing. And I know to our minds, it's like, how can you even say that? But Paul is clear in other places that he's a sinner. One can be a sinner and live with a clear conscience before God and other people, if we are quick to confess our sins and to trust in his forgiveness. All right, so let me just be clear. It's probably not wise for us to go around proclaiming that we are blameless and have been rewarded for our righteousness, okay? David is the inspired king of Israel. He is writing the Bible like he's probably able to say some things that, you know, it would be unwise for us to lead with, at least, okay? 
Nor do I think that we should, like the Pharisee in Luke 18, stand before God and say, I'm sure glad that I am not guilty like those other guys. That's not it either. There's a big difference between saying those things and simply saying to the Lord, I see that I am safe when I walk with you. And I, I want to strive to be blameless because I see that safety. And I, and I think there's a place for us, older Christians, more mature Christians, to say to other people, hey man, I love you, and I just want you to know that God has, has given a better way than you're living and I can testify to that in my life. Like, there is, there is value in obeying God. Let me explain it to you. It's not, it's not so that you can be saved, but it's so that you can live in peace with him and with other people and that you can be safe. David says right there at the end, he says, You are my lamp, O Lord. My God lightens my darkness. For you, with you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. So I played water polo last night in a pool with a bunch of teenagers. And what I discover when I went to bed is that my body is not going to leap over a wall anytime soon. I can't even leap out of the pool. When the ball goes out of the pool, I am anxious for some person who can leap out of that pool to go and get that ball so that I can have a minute to gather myself. But here are the, the key words here. For by you, David says, for by you I can run against a troop. For by my God I can leap over a wall. And if I understand this right, what David is saying is, by the Lord I can run toward the enemy and I can leap over the wall when they try to go into their fortress and hide. With God's help, David is saying, I am not just safe from my enemy, I am actually going to be able to run right at them. Turn the tables. Keep your finger in, in 2 Samuel 22, just for a second, and turn with me over to uh, Psalm 27. I know we're reading a lot of scripture today, but I feel like this point is worth digging down on just a little bit. This is one of my favorite psalms in the Bible. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Do you see David's confidence there? Like, one thing I have asked of the Lord, just one thing, just let me dwell in the house of the Lord. Let me live with you because when I am dwelling in your house, nobody can get me. When I'm with you, God, I, I'm safe. 
Let me be there. Let me stay there. Give me your grace. Give me your mercy. He says down in verse 11, he says, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. What in the world does walking with the Lord have to do with helping me with my enemies? You know, like, Lord, give me like real armor and real shields. Help me with my enemies. No, no. He says, teach me to walk in your ways, and then, then I will be able to, 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 to because of my enemies, Apparently, walking in God's ways has everything to do with our enemies. All right, turn back to 2 Samuel 22. This last section of the deliverance part is kind of theological, you know? So it's like, hey, how, how, pastor, how should I stay safe in this life? Well, I think you should... Invest yourself in poetry and theology. And, and at that point, a lot of people keep walking. But this is what, this is what David presents to us here. All right, let's, let's start at verse 32, and we're going we're gonna to get down close to the end here. For, for who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness made me great. You gave me a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. These are all ways that God has made him safe and sturdy. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me and those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets." You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me, and as soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. So he says, who is the Lord? Who is God but the Lord? Very theological. The Lord our God is the only God. You know, we Christians today, we're so afraid of offending people. We're so afraid of offending unbelievers with our claims, but our claims are just inherently offensive. David says, your God is not a God. Like, that's offensive. Your God is not a God. And then he proceeds to talk about his God, the real God. My God is a strong refuge. My God made me secure. My God trained me for war. My God gave me the shield of salvation. David is describing this unparalleled success. The Lord has made him invincible. Saul did not trust in Yahweh. So David's basically saying, let's compare gods. Can your God make you invincible? Can your God raise you from the dead when you die? I didn't think so. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was no one to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. David says, my enemies ran away. They actually cried for someone to save them, and there was no response. 
When you cry to your God made of wood or or metal or stone in the day of your calamity, they cannot help you. I cried to the Lord in the day of my calamity, and I found that he was support. He was a support. What happened when you cried to your gods? How, How did that go? There was no one to save is a terrifying statement. It should terrify all of us, but it's also a little bit of a taunt. He's saying, look, your gods aren't really good gods. You should really switch gods because my God is better than your God. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. What about your God? He says, they cried to the Lord, but he did not answer. And that gets back to Psalm 145 that I mentioned earlier. The Lord is near to those who call on him. Which ones? The ones who call on him in truth. Proverbs 1 says this. Speaking of those who reject the wisdom of God. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, and would have none of my counsel and despised my reproof, Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way, and they shall fill, have their fill of their own devices. So I ask you, brothers and sisters, do not hear all of this and assume that when the time comes, you will be able to call upon the Lord. The lie of Satan, by the way, is that you can live your busy life now and indulge in those areas that you have decided are gray areas, and then one day when calamity comes, you're just going to snap your finger and you're going to call on the Lord because that may not be the case. There are those who face calamity, come to the end of themselves, and by God's mercy cry out and receive salvation. But there are many who, when calamity comes, it turns out they have no interest in God or else they shake their fist at him. Revelation speaks of the time when God's judgments are literally pouring down from heaven, and it says that the wicked still refuse to bow before him. So 2 Samuel 22 is a beautiful, poetic, theological picture of God's deliverance, and I want you to be swept up in David's description. I want you to say, I want to be that person. I want to know that God. Wouldn't it be great to live with that confidence? But I know that some of you will say, just not ready for that level of devotion in my life right now. These things sound good in church, but you know, I have to go out tomorrow and live the real life. I've got some other things I want to accomplish before I get serious. I'm young now, and I'm strong. I'll worry about all of that when I'm old and weak. And God may be gracious to you. He may bring you to the end of yourself. You may repent of the wickedness of your self-reliance. But why not turn now, today, while this truth is right in front of you, and you have the rest of your life to enjoy the safety of knowing God? David finishes his conclusion, the legacy of his praise. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me from above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows his steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever.
Faith is a muscle. I believe this with all of my heart. When you exercise it, it gets stronger. When you trust in God and you find that his promises are real, you are more able to trust in him again later. David's own experience with God in the past leads him to have faith for the future. And in a primitive way, I think David here anticipates what we know better, which is that Yahweh has indeed promised to rule over the nation. There's an expectation of resurrection. I will praise you among the nations. I know right now that all I'm dealing with is the little squabbles between the Philistines and the, and the Israelites and blah, blah. But, but one day, David says, I, I will praise you among the nations because remember what, what we learn later in the prophets is that the whole world is going to be filled with the knowledge of God. So I, that's a statement of faith in the resurrection. He's going to be there when it happens, and it's a statement of faith that God is indeed going to have a kingdom that fills this whole world. And David and his offspring will spend eternity enjoying the steadfast love of that God. David's excitement over what God has done breeds excitement about what God is going to do. And that's what walking with God does. It leads us to trust him, it leads to deliverance, it leads to thankfulness, and it leads to the expectation that God will continue to bless us forever. So let me go back to the beginning and ask you the question, what do you have to say about your God? If Tyler gets up here and sings that chorus again, hint, 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 would you sing it different after understanding all of this. I believe that God's people should be ready and willing to testify about God's faithfulness. I think somebody should walk in here and should hear the people of God testifying about the goodness of God. This isn't just my idea. In the New Testament, Peter says, always be ready, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you you might consider writing that down. What is it that God has done in you and for you? Speak of these things with your children. Your children should know that God has been faithful to you. You should tell them about how God has been faithful to you and to your family, and rejoice in God's goodness. I know there's a lot of talk of, of trauma and sadness these days, but I do, I believe that we've almost gotten to the point where we feel bad to speak out about the goodness of God. It's almost like we're embarrassed that we're not suffering. The Bible says weep with those who weep, yes, but it also says rejoice with those who rejoice. Brothers and sisters, it honors God to sing of his goodness, to say, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. That may be a kid's song, but it honors God. If you've got nothing else, we could say that. Secondly, and with this we'll close, in the day of my calamity, the Lord was my support. If you are a Christian, you know something of that cry. Because to be a follower of Jesus means that at some point you saw your sin and you cried out to Jesus to save you. When we see our sin for what it is and we see God for who he is, our wickedness and his holiness, that is a day of calamity. And it causes us to say, Lord, save me. Lord, please 
save me. And like David, you can testify, the Lord heard your cry. Praise God. You realized you were dead in trespasses and sins, and Jesus was there. He made you alive, and he raised you up to sit with him. Brothers and sisters, we can always rejoice in that, if nothing else. Paul sat in a squalid jail cell singing hymns. After a solid beating from the Jews, the disciples rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. These are not super Christians. They simply knew Jesus and they trusted Jesus and their faith was strong. So we take this meal every week because of what Christ did for us. And it is meant to be an encouragement and it is an act of faith. I would say every time we take this little meal, when we're together, it is defiantly saying to the world, I trust in that God. Because in doing so, Paul actually says, when we take the bread and we take the cup, what does he say? We read it every week. We are proclaiming his death until he comes. We are acknowledging his goodness to us. We are proclaiming his death that saved us. And we are saying he's coming again. And so we rejoice in that. So this meal is a little piece of 1 Samuel 22. This is a little piece of us saying we are being defiant against our enemies. And we are proclaiming that they will be defeated. So if you understand that, if you know that this morning, I I invite you to participate with us in this act of cosmic defiance. If you don't know Jesus, I would ask you to, to refrain, not because this is anything secret, not because this is anything special, but because I want you to understand the extent to which it signifies faith in the real God. If you're visiting with us this morning, you're more than welcome to participate with us. If you, if you know the Lord, hang on to the bread, the, the cracker, hang on to the cup, and I'll come back up here and read, and we will partake together in just a few minutes.